Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi everyone and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. In this episode, I'm talking to Alison Weatherby about her young adult novel, The Secrets Act. Alison lives in Dublin with her family, but for 15 years worked in Seattle in the tech industry, where she tried to fit in her love of writing alongside her career. In 2020, she entered the Open Coop submission opportunity run by the publisher Chicken House, and through this, she was offered a mentorship and later a book deal. In this chat, we discuss how entering a competition led to a book deal, Alison's feelings about plotting versus pantsing, and the benefit of a writing critique group. But first, here's Alison with an extract from The Secrets Act. The letter of employment had arrived at her home only weeks after her initial interview in London. Over breakfast the next morning, her parents agreed it was her duty to serve the king like her brother. Her mum, smiling wistfully, made a nostalgic comment about life back in Oxfordshire. She told Ellen to embrace the chance to get out of Wales for good. I never wanted my English children to end up with a common Welsh accent. This is the chance to shake it, she remarked. They'd moved to a village outside Cardiff when Ellen was quite young. Wales was home to her, and she never understood her mother's constant pining for England. It had been the source of arguments between her parents for as long as Ellen could remember, but, to her knowledge, her father had no intention of ever leaving his job at the bank to move back. Ellen had not been given a choice to return to the University of Wales in Cardiff for her second year. Her father made it clear that the interview and employment had resulted as much from his connections as her intelligence. Because of his efforts, there was to be no questioning of her opportunity with the Foreign Office. Ellen appreciated his endeavors. Being proactive was very unlike him. Besides, Ellen loved her father's warm smiles and general selflessness which was required around her strict, rigid mother, and wanted to do right by him. Plus, this was the chance to finally prove to her mother she could navigate the world on her own. But now, staring into the empty street, Ellen already felt homesick for the silliest things. The heavy quilt on her bed, the smell of her father's evening cigarette, the tin of biscuits always available to squelch late-night hunger pains. She tried not to think of her hollow stomach or the way her eyes kept filling. The sounds of the empty, dark town made her nervous, Every snatched twig or distant crack of a door slamming made her flinch. It felt like she was somewhere she should not be, which was a bad way to begin the next chapter of her new life. The breeze kicked up, raising hairs on the back of her neck. A faint noise in the distance caught her attention. Footsteps. Thuds getting louder. Closer together. Frantically, Ellen looked for a place to hide, but felt daft as soon as she did. She'd seen enough safety flyers to know not to walk around in the dark. How many people had died falling into holes or walking onto train tracks? Instead, 
Ellen stood firm with her suitcase close to her chest, ready to hurl it at whomever was heading in her direction. Down the road, she spotted a very faint sliver of light, perhaps a torch picked for use during blackout. Ellen made herself very still, though her eyes scanned the road for an escape route, just in case. Hi, Alison. So nice to have you on the podcast. Um, you're my very first guest, so it's extra special for me to have you here today. I was just wondering if we could start with you telling us a little bit about the plot of your novel, The Secrets Act. Of course. First of all, thanks so much for having me. This is it's great to be here. Um, the Secrets Act is set in Bletchley Park uh, during World War II, 1941. And it follows two girls who are, are working at Bletchley. They're young adults, um, 17. They forge a friendship as they get to know each other. Um, uh, one of their friends is murdered. And so, well, they think it's mur- murder. And they start investigating that um, and uncover sort of a spy ring. Uh, it's, it's a mystery. There's espionage, friendship, a little bit of romance, all of that. Great. We should mention at this point your uh, your books are a YA novel. It is. Um, yes. Sorry. Uh, published by published by Chicken House. Just tell me a little bit about how you got your publishing deal because you won a, a mentorship run through the publisher, which was like a a window of a twenty four hour submission period, was it? And mm-hmm. uh, you submitted a synopsis and an extract from your novel, and then. Did you, uh, so from the mentorship, did you then get your deal via that? I did, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. You, uh, it's a 24-hour window where you can submit. Um, and honestly, I went into it not knowing really much about it. I just saw it online and thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll submit and see what happens. Um, and then a few months later, they came back and asked for the full manuscript if I had it. And then a few months later said that I'd been awarded the mentorship, which at that time I still didn't really know what it meant, which was silly. Um, but uh, I had, I think, two meetings with um, with my soon-to-be editor, Kezia um, and Barry, who runs Chicken House. And they, um, they gave me some editorial notes, asked me what my plan was if I were to incorporate these. I sent them back an outline and they offered me a book deal. And it was kind of a dream, honestly. Like, it was... It was so unexpected, and I, I didn't think that it would. I, I didn't think I would get a, a book deal out of out of this at all. I thought I would get some great advice and connections. Um, so it was it was really lovely. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so it must have been a bit of a whirlwind for you. And and did it happen in twenty twenty, right in the middle of the <laughs> first lockdown? It did. In fact, Kezia contacted me to tell me that I um, I won the the mentorship through Open Coop um, in. Gosh, I want to say March or or some like between the March and May time period. And over here, I live in Ireland, and we were completely locked down. I could only go you know two kilometers from my house, sort of thing. So um, it was it was great news during that time, which was which was crazy. But you know, then I I feel like I did everything sort of in reverse with this book, where I had to um, then find an agent after I'd gotten my publishing deal. So it was scrambling a bit about uh, to, to do that part um but you know honestly it all worked out obviously and um uh, it was a great experience really great experience 
Yeah, that that sounds that sounds like a an unusual way of doing it, but you'd be surprised at how many people don't have the kind of linear uh, journey to getting a book deal. So, what was your uh, process like in getting an agent? Was it easier? Do you think because you had the deal already, or did it kind of pro- uh, come with its own challenges? You know, I think that it came with its own challenges because people. Um, I think some agents, some agents actually honestly said that they didn't they didn't want to represent me because of, you know, because I already had the deal. Fine. Um, and I had some contacts who put me in touch with different, different agencies. Um, and, and I was surprised at the few people who did say that they weren't interested, but at the end of the day, I had three agents I got to choose from. And I, I feel like that's amazing. Um, most people don't have that. Um, and I chose uh, my agents, Lucy Irvine, at PFD and she, I, I mean, I felt like she understood the book from, from the get go and was just so involved. Um, she's been amazing. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it was very backwards. It was weird. Um, but it was, I had queried previously on this same book. Um, I'm, you can hear I'm American. So I had queried some, some U S agents and gotten a lot of interest, but no, um, you know, no offers. And so I just sort of thought, that, you know, maybe, maybe I wouldn't have an agent and that would be okay. You know, there was a time period where I got the offer and I hadn't gotten an agent and I just, you know, the woe is me sort of thing. Um, but then it, it all, it all fell into place. So it's all good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, going back to your book and I read in the back of your, uh, in the author's note, uh, that the inspiration for the secrets act came to you on a visit to Bletchley Park. And you've talked about how, uh, you're, you're inspired by, uh, well, since moving to Britain and um, an Ireland, um, can you talk a bit about the early stage of writing and and when you realised from that fir- from that first visit to kind of when you had the seeds forming? When did you know you had a novel? Uh, well, I visited. My sister lives over in England, so uh, we were tourists and went to Bletchley. And I think what struck me from the beginning was finding out that seventy five percent of the people who worked at Bletchley were women. And I have two young girls of my own and just at the time was thinking, this is such an amazing, like the stories that these women had must have been just so amazing. They were doing these crazy, difficult things, um, keeping them completely secret. Nobody told anybody anything for years and years and years. Couldn't even tell their husbands, their family, anything. There were stories that I read where these women would you know, say, I wish I would have told, would have been able to tell my father before he died. And it's just... Uh, but they were doing all these things and they were completely silent. They didn't talk to one another about what the other person was doing. So they only knew their bit of, of the task um, and didn't really know entirely what what larger picture they were aiming for. Um, and I found it all just fascinating. I My paying career is in tech. I've always worked in, in tech. So um, I have, I'm very passionate about women working in tech and, and doing, you know, smart math sciencey sort of things and and this just sort of put all the pieces together um I don't feel like I knew I had a novel like I I felt like I had the idea for a novel and it it was a great book that somebody could write maybe that somebody would be me um and I don't feel like I had that until I got a grasp on the characters um and I don't for me most of my books that I've written I, I feel like they're character driven um and so what I did when I thought, okay, this could be a great plot, was start reading just everything I could about Bletchley. And the stories were amazing. Bletchley Park 
itself has a, a great um, website with tons of uh, personal stories on there. Um, and once I sort of figured out who my inspiration would be for my characters, I was able to pull a story together. Um, I, I wanted it to be a friendship story at its core. That was most important to me. Yeah, you can definitely tell that. I mean, the um, the basis for the story is that key friendship at the centre of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and with Pearl and Ellen, I think uh, you're rooting for their friendship from from the moment they meet. So mm-hmm. that's that's a lovely part of it. Yeah. Um, have you written historical uh, fiction before, or was this your first attempt? Yeah, I have not oh, written was. historical. <laughs> yeah, so this is my first oh, wow. attempt. Yeah, and it was um, it was. It was interesting. I've written, I have a previous novel that I wrote um, with another agent in the States um, and it's gone nowhere, but it's, it's um, a contemporary mystery and I love mysteries. And so I knew that I wanted to have a mystery aspect in this, um, but historical is a challenge. Uh, thankfully, I have many friends who have written historical before. And so I have a, a good friend in the States who has written a historical piece, and she put me in touch with Jane Rosen, who's a, um, a librarian at the Imperial War Museum. And I was able to spend a day in their archives and their research rooms um, just looking at actual letters that people had written, and, and just that was just amazing, uh, just such fun. Um, I do apologize to the people at Blatchley Park because I did their, their research. I emailed them all the time asking, like, were the desks metal or wood? And finally, one of the researchers was like, okay, we don't know. <laughs> Just, you know, move forward. So I feel like this was a good learning experience for me. I'm writing a, another book now that is also historical. And I'm, I learned in the first book, you can't just... Di- you can't do that with the deep dives into the materials of the desks and all that, at least not in the drafting stages. So I'm... So did you just kind of leave those details blank and then fill them in afterwards? Um, how did you... Did the kind of... Did the research inspire the movement of the plot or did you have to just forget about the research and tell the story first and then go back and fill in the details? So that's the most economical way to do it. And I learned that in this process. So my, my, new, my book that I'm writing now, that is how I'm approaching it, is I'm not doing the deep dive into the historical. I am figuring out the plot. I'm figuring out the mystery. I'm figuring out all of the turns. In The Secrets Act, I did spend a fair amount of time, just stopped for a day wondering what sort of perfume they would wear, or, you know, like that sort of thing, or what would mm-hmm. they be eating right now? And, and that just is fascinating and fun but it's also a huge waste of time so my recommendation is to figure out the story figure out the characters figure out the plot and and just put in brackets you know like what would they be eating here and go back and do it later because I wasted so much time (laughs) yeah that's really good advice I think like you say you get bogged down in the details and you don't get any any further with your writing Mm -hmm. was there anything that you learned in your research that you desperately wanted to include and you couldn't because it just wasn't room for it oh my goodness there's there were so many things um i the whole history of bletchley like early bletchley was fascinating um when the people showed up there and and sort of uh, tried it out if you will and it was a secret um community uh that was so interesting i wanted to get the bombing of coventry in there at one point i mean there were all these things that i wanted to include and at the end um I, i remember trying to include a lot of things and kezia saying to me it is fiction as well, so you can 
get some of this history out. Let's make the story work <laughs> and and move it forward. Because at the end of the day, it was it was very important to make sure that the story worked. Um, at one point, I wanted um, I wanted the spies to be Russian because I thought that was fascinating. Um, and it just proves to be too much of a historical leap and an educational thing. And 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 so you had I had to kind of pare back on some of the stuff I wanted to include. But at the end of the day, I I think the story worked with what's in it. Um, it's just getting that balance of fiction and history that was a bit yeah. of a struggle. Did did you find uh, because you were writing for young adults that you had to perhaps kind of explain things in more detail or give a bit more context because I thought you did you went from the very first page you've got a real sense of the time and place and kind of little details that indicate to the reader that we are in a historical Mm -hmm. time but did you find that you had to think about it because there are certain things I guess as adults we know about the era Mm -hmm. that we would just not assume that a reader would know but I think whether you're trying to explain things a bit more clearly to to young adults. Yes. And I think that when I was talking about the Russian spies, for instance, that was one of those instances where it just, it proved to be too much. Um, I think the struggle, honestly, that I had was I wanted to explain all the details of Enigma Code and things like that, but Ellen and Pearl would not have known any of that. So making Pearl a messenger where she was able to ferry messages messages back and forth to the various huts and, and all that and overhear things was very helpful because she was aware of things that I don't think your average Bletchley Park worker would know. Um, they were very siloed. So yeah, it was um, it was kind of a balance of educating but not educating too much so it would it wouldn't be authentic to the time period. That um, mm. was a struggle. <laughs> <laughs> well I think you did a good job with that thank you <laughs> um, and I think despite the historical setting your novel carries a really strong message about the importance of young women and knowledge and, and power and I know you've spoken about how your interest is in kind of women in tech and science and, and maths and things um, how do you think your themes in this in this novel resonate with young women today you know I I think it's at the time that I was writing it um there were a lot of things happening in our society that were not great for women. And I wanted to write a book that it would empower young girls and to, to show them that historically women have been able to do amazing things. Um, and, and when put to the task can really, really accomplish great things. And that's, that was what I was hoping to get across. Um, and I, I think, I mean, if you look at the stories of these women at Bletchley, they, they did fabulous things and were so incredibly intelligent. Um, so I feel like that that was something that I really wanted to get across was was historically women can push through this. We can persevere. We can, you know, be be anything, really. Um, and so hopefully that was that was communicated well. And you uh, mentioned your daughters in the uh, in your acknowledgments at yes. the end. Did you have them in mind when you were when you were writing it? Were you writing it kind of for them? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, because they're they're twelve and nine now, and and my oldest daughter loves science and math, and you know, I just wanted I, I wanted them, but also you know their friends and 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 everyone to know that it is 
it is often a struggle being a, a woman or a girl in, in your science class or in a university or when you're doing things that aren't typical, you know, quote unquote girl things, but it can be done and it's, it's, it's worth the struggle. Um, at the end, I, I saw a lot of, of women kind of trying to break through that glass ceiling when I worked in tech and it's, it's not easy, but it is, it is, it is something that, that we can do. Mm. Yeah, with the with the Bletchley uh, women, it's that kind of unsung heroes, isn't it? Silently it is. working away in the background. It, it <laughs> is, it is. And they, I mean, they're like, I won't even get into all of the, the women who were spies all over the, you know, all, all over Europe and doing these fascinating things. Um, really, really amazing jobs that these women did. And yeah, didn't get much recognition until many years later. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, as we've talked about your your novel at, at its heart, it's a mystery novel, and I was really impressed by how tight you plotted it all was, uh, particularly like all the red herrings and uh, roots of investigation. So when you planned this novel, kind of how meticulous were you, or was it was did kind of the little little red herrings and details come together near the end? Uh, I would say more near the end. I um, I am not much of a, a plotter. I'm more of a pantser. I don't know if you heard those right. terms. And so, <laughs> <I know>. yeah. <laughs> and so I feel like this this novel had many iterations, 
Um, and just getting the mystery right uh, was not easy. Um, and some of the red herrings were unintentional. <laughs> some of them were intentional. You know, I feel like you put some in thinking this could go somewhere and then it doesn't. Um, I, I, toward the end when I got more focus, um, probably around the time that I submitted it to the open coop, I felt like it was, it was dialed in more on the mystery and I really had a, an idea of what was happening. But, um, I, you know, the, originally there was only one, well, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to give it away, but originally it was completely different. <laughs> <laughs> Originally, it was completely different um, in the ending. I think the ending changed four times. Um, wow, okay. Yeah, and I, I changed at least at least twice with Kezia um, because it just wasn't quite right. You know, you have to, with a mystery, you have to be perfect, I feel like. And mm. um, and she and I, at the, at the end, like in the, in the last line edit, she was saying, I, mm, this is not quite right. And we had a discussion, and she said... I think it needs, I think the ending needs to change. And I said to her, well, I can't, it's too hard. It's too hard. And, <laughs> and she said, okay, well, fine. Just, just sit on it for a bit. And I did. And I wrote her back and said, all right, you're right. I know you're right. It's going to be hard, but I have to do it this way. And, and in the end it was, it was the best decision. So, um, yeah, some of it was rather late in, in coming <laughs> to fruition. <laughs> So you weren't the sort of person with post-it notes on your wall right at the beginning and all these kind of <laughs> threads. <laughs> no, I am now. I am now. I have... I'm... Oh, so you think it's you think it's changed your process? Yes, Are you absolutely. you more of a plotter now? I am, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, if you can see, like, beyond my computers, I have a wall here and it's just covered in post-it notes. Um, I have notebooks. Um, I had notebooks before, but I feel like my process has changed completely. Um this has been a great learning experience for me. So also I wanted to bring up something uh, to talk about your kind of writing process as we were talking about plotting and planning. You mentioned something which absolutely terrifies me in your, in your acknowledgement. You have a 5am critique group. Now, <laughs> is that actually a critique group that meets at 5am? Can you, can you explain it? Yes. So I am originally from Seattle, Washington, and, um, and had, I was a member of um, Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators in, in Seattle. Um, it's fairly large in the US. And um, had a critique group there. We would meet in the evenings. And when I moved to Dublin, I we all decided, well, we can't break up. Um, and so they meet in the evenings and I wake up at 4.45 to log on at five. I have my coffee, they each have a pint and we do, we do our critique group. And it's been going for 12 years now. So wow. totally <laughs> worth it, completely worth the early mornings. <laughs> I, I'm not a morning person, and that sounds like my idea of hell, but if it works for you. How important do you think is a kind of a writing group, uh, um, like a critique group for your um, your own process? I, you know, I love it. And I would say that's, when talking to people who've just started out writing, that's one of my first recommendations, is get your get your people. Because whether it's just one person you're exchanging work with or somebody you go on walks with and, and talk about plotting, it's so valuable to have another set of ears. Um, in my critique group, um, we all have our strengths, I feel like. Um, there's three of us and one person is incredibly lar- good at the large picture and, and just taking a look at the whole book. And um, and the other one is very good at like little details and line edits and things like that. And so I feel like we all have bits that we bring to the table um, and it's really great. And the other thing is too, like we're all, 
like champions of each other's work, right? So whenever you're feeling horrible about something, I can't tell you how many times I went to them and said, no, really tell me if this is garbage. Tell me if I should just put this in the bin because it's, it's not, I'm not feeling it. And, and I believe what they say. I believe that they are looking out for my best interest and will tell me, yeah, you know, that chapter was pretty rotten, but you can keep going. Or, you know, in the case of this, this book, I actually did ask them if it was, if, <laughs> if I should be binned at one point. And, and thankfully they told me to keep going. So it's, I, I think everybody needs that encouragement um, and that feedback. Yeah, I, I, I definitely see the value in it. And I, I think it makes you a better writer when you're reading other people's work mm-hmm. to perhaps to pick up on mistakes that you know that you make as well. But if you're seeing it in other people's work, it's easier to, to spot it in other people's than your own. But right. <laughs> that's just exactly. the way it goes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to talk a bit more about Ellen mm-hmm. um, because you've mentioned that in sort of today's understanding we would recognize her as neurodivergent Mm -hmm. and you had a sensitivity reader to support you in your writing. Um, Can you explain why you were really keen to kind of uh, make Ellen's character have this uh, neurodivergence and also what your experience was like with working with a sensitivity reader? Mm -hmm. Well, as I started doing the research, I realized that it probably took a certain personality type to, to really thrive in the Bletchley Park environment. Um, you had to be very focused. You had to, you know, focus on one task for a very long period of time. Um, a lot of these people were, uh, you know, excelled in science and math and were, were you know, superstars at their university or, or whatever. Um, and I, in my own life, have several friends with um, children on the spectrum, various places on the spectrum. Um, and just realized that that those children were um, were also very focused, and and looked at them and thought, gosh, they would have they would have done really well in that environment. They would have thrived. Um, yeah. It's it's and it's it's fabulous. It would have been fabulous for them to to work there. So I thought um, as Ellen's character started coming together, and she had these little differences, and I wanted her to be different than Pearl in in many ways. Um, I. I started sort of adding little bits that would that would kind of make a nod to that. And I, I wasn't entirely sure that that's what I wanted to do going into it, but it just, it, her personality just sort of formed in that respect. Um, and I knew, you know, I couldn't make any mention of it because none of that stuff was, was defined at that yeah. time period. Um, but when Chicken House said they had, had gotten the, um, the diversity... Um, read for me. I was, I was thrilled. It was such a gift. Mm. Um, it was, uh, first of all, t- to know that I hadn't gotten it wrong, <laughs> to know that yeah. that I hadn't hadn't done anything horrible, and second, um, the additional materials that she gave me to read, um, and the tips and little just little details, um, I felt like really helped kind of round out Ellen's entire personality um and make her more true to herself um it was incredibly value valuable i absolutely would if anyone if you're ever recommended to to get one or i I would say it's incredibly valuable really great Mm. it's like another layer of research isn't it really it's adding Mm -hmm. the authenticity 
uh, to right. your book. So uh, yeah. I'm really pleased to hear that it was yeah. uh, really valuable to you. Um, I think I think there's obviously been a lot more conversation about sensitivity readers mm-hmm. in recent years, um, and I just think in my mind there's 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 no downside to having yeah. that extra extra uh, kind of input an extra pair of eyes reading uh, your work and and making it as as strong as it can be exactly um i want wonder if you are able to uh if there are any kind of aspiring ya authors out there kind of give your let's say top three tips to uh becoming a ya writer <laughs> Uh, first, I would say you have to read everything. And I, I know that people say that over and over, but really do read a ton. I read a ton. I, it's why I became a writer in the first place, because I love to read and I, I wanted more mystery books out there for, for this age group. Um, so read. And second, as I said before, find your community, because that is just like, it, it is it is so, so valuable to have the support, um, and whether it's an online group or in person or anything, it's just it's really great to find people who are doing the same thing you're doing, have your same struggles, understand what you're going through. It's, it's incredibly valuable. Um, and I guess third, keep going. Just like keep going. <laughs> it's taken me ages to get here and I've had many ups and downs in my journey. Um, and it, none of this happened the way I thought it was going to happen. Um, but keep writing and do what you're passionate about and and it'll be rewarding it will that's really great advice and going back to your mentorship would you uh kind of advise people to take every opportunity they can to uh, enter competitions and and mm-hmm. uh opportunities like that oh absolutely um because you just don't you don't know and i feel like i mean i know a friend here in Dublin who entered the chicken house competition a few years ago, the times competition, and she was shortlisted and she's, you know, she's still working with chicken house on, on things. And and like, I feel like you get all sorts of opportunities. You get connections, you meet people, you just, you don't know where it's going to take you. You may not get a publishing deal out of it. You may not, you know, have a bestseller the next day, but you will meet people. You will learn things. It's, it's incredibly valuable. And what's the, been your kind of favorite thing about being a debut writer so far? <laughs> the, the favorite thing, honestly, I have met a lot of people um, through this, and you know, we moved to Dublin four years ago now, and I felt like I left my writing community behind in Seattle, and um, and I've just met so many people through this, um, booksellers and local writers, um, and you know, other debuts, and it's been really, really nice to to kind of branch out and, and extend my community. So I, I feel like that's, that's been the, that's been the best. Oh, that's lovely to hear. <laughs> and now you've got your book, you've got a paperback version in your hand. I do. Um, and it looks stunning. And I love the details on the pages, like the little planes and, oh, it's so nice. Um, did you get any input in that or was it all a total kind of surprise? And um, how did you feel when you first saw the, uh, the hard copy of the pages? It's so I did and I didn't. Um, Kezia had put together a Pinterest board of all these different images for the book cover, and at first I thought, oh my goodness, someone loves my book enough to put a Pinterest board together. That's crazy. <laughs> um, and it was, and they said they wanted to do something a little bit more daring, um, and to put an actual person, a photograph on the cover of, and not have it. A lot of books will have the person looking away or just the torso, or you know, so you don't. 
see the person's face and they wanted a face. Um, and I thought, well, that's fabulous. Um, I did have, um, some input on, on a lot of it. Um, honestly, the, the versions that I saw, I really, I really liked. They had a different image on the back cover that didn't work for me. Um, and so I talked to them about alternate images that they offered and they, they did go the route that I wanted to go on the back cover, which I was really pleased with. Um, I was surprised at the, um, the little airplanes on the inside and, and all of the, the details they had. I knew, I, I, I read a lot, obviously, and, and I have a lot of chicken house books that I love, um, and I know they do phenomenal covers. So I was not nervous, um, but also a lot of my writer friends had said, you're not going to get much input, so, <laughs> you know, just be yeah. okay with that. Um, and I'm, I think nerves is natural, you know, and I think it's, it's, it's your baby at the end of the day. You want it to look uh, good, don't you? So, yes, yes. Um, but I was really pleased with what they put together. Um, I think it captures a lot of, of, uh, of the book. Um, and I, I think it's, it is, it is a little bit different and a little bit daring and I hope it does st- stand out on the bookshelves. Mm. And for readers who you think would be, um, interested in your novel, um, what other books would you say are kind of, um, would be on the same shelf, for example, kind of, can you think of any, uh, recent YA books that, you think would appeal um, for readers of The Secrets Act? Mm-hmm. I would say that, um, I mean, the, the one that comes to mind automatically and when I was reading this is Codename Verity, which is my absolute favourite um, historical fiction. Um, but also um, Fountains of Silence, uh, anything by, by Ruta Septis. She's an amazing historical fiction writer. Um, I would say Lucy Strange's books are probably on the same vein and uh, hers are, can be a little bit, I would say are a little bit dreamier than mine um, and they're, they're gorgeous. Um, but yeah, I would say along, along that sort of line. And I'm going to give you one final question. It's the question that every writer hates. <laughs> and I'm going to ask you about what you're writing, what are you writing now and what are you working on? Uh, a, new, a new novel. I am working on a new novel. Um, it was my goal to get the first draft done before Christmas, and I did that just barely. Um, wow, well done. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. It's not a great first draft, <laughs> I'll have you know. But um, it is set in a similar time period, um, 1943, World War II. Um, and part of the research that I did at the Imperial War Museum just opened up all these avenues for me. Um, and uh, I read about the listening stations, the wireless listening stations that England had all over the place. And um, and they were just fascinating. Um, and so this one is set, it's a wireless listening station um, set near Dover uh, in a lighthouse. And it's a follows a young girl who um, was a voluntary uh, interceptor. So she would listen t- um, to the radio signals in her home, which a fair amount of... Uh, people did in England and is then recruited to go work um at this this Y station um and because it's a book that I'm writing there's a mystery there's a murder <laughs> and she has to she has to figure it out so <laughs> yeah and this time it's plotted it is it is already <laughs> it is it is I have my post-it notes I know who did it I know why they did it I feel much more organized on this version <laughs> Brilliant. That sounds fantastic. Thank you so much, Alison, for speaking with me today and being on the podcast. Oh, thank you. It was it was really fun. I appreciate it. 
That was Alison Weatherby talking about her young adult novel, The Secrets Act, out now and available to buy. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Mm-hmm.